0: Are you ready to take your leadership and your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate, evolve, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf.
1: Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations, I'm your host Maureen Metcalf, I'm the Founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their businesses and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create sustainable business and strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member in universities in the US and Germany. Welcome to Cynthia Cherry, who is the president and CEO of the International Leadership Association. We are broadcasting live from Brussels at the annual leadership conference. Thank you, Maureen, for being here with us here in Brussels. I'm so excited about the series of keynote speakers that we are able to present and that will give a timeless message around our topic and theme of leadership in turbulent times. And I'm very pleased with our conference chair, Jorit Volkers from Deloitte University, the Dean of Deloitte University and his team who helped us along with the ILA staff to present this global conference in Brussels, Belgium in 2017. joined right now by Margaret Heffernan. Welcome. I'm delighted you're here. I'm delighted to be here. Margaret produced programs for the BBC for 13 years. She then moved to the United States where she spearheaded multimedia productions for Intuit, the Learning Company, and Standard and Poors. As the chief executive of a media corporation, she was named one of the top 25 by streaming media magazine and one of the top 100 media executives, by Hollywood Reporter. She's the author of five books. Her third book, Willful Blindness, Why We Ignore the Obvious at Our Own Peril, was named one of the most important business books of the decade by Financial Times. In 2015, she was rewarded the Transmission Prize for a Bigger Prize, Why Competition Isn't Everything and How We Do Better. So, an amazingly impressive (laughs) bio. (laughs) Today we're going to talk about new leadership and how leadership is changing, which has been a theme of this series. We're at the International Leadership Association Conference, and the theme of the conference is leading in turbulent times. So what Margaret will talk about specifically is what does it look like, this leadership of the future, and what do we do? And why do we need new leadership? Wasn't the old leadership effective? And presumably it was then, not going forward. And also, as we talk about new leadership, we need to connect it to management. And what's changing in management? Is that new too? Or do we have old management and new leadership? Mm -hmm. And how do they work together? So let's get started. Where do you want to start, Margaret?
2: Wherever you're happy.
1: (laughs) So why new? What's
2: wrong with what we're doing? Well, I think, you know, and I'll oversimplify here for the sake of clarity, but I think I think the old leadership was somewhat technocratic. Okay. It put enormous emphasis and value on expertise, mm-hmm. on planning and execution. And leaders were people who planned well, executed well, delivered, exceeded promises
1: mm-hmm.
2: on time, under budget etc etc and sometimes they did it with flair and sometimes they did it in a very vanilla understated quiet kind of way Mm -hmm. you know Jim Collins would say that actually the boring vanilla leaders were the better leaders
1: Mm -hmm. good there's hope for me
2: (laughs) and for a while I think that's what we meant when we talked about leadership it's certainly what Collins meant when he talked about leadership and there were Obviously, aspects of that kind of leadership that went beyond pure technocratic expertise, which was about giving work some kind of meaning and making people feel that they worked in a place that supported their needs and desires. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why do we have to change that? Well, I think if it had actually consistently delivered what I've just described, we probably wouldn't have to change it. Okay. But the truth is that it has not delivered that, that the exceptional leaders that you know, have been much biographied are truly exceptions. That we have seen scandal after scandal, institutional failure after institutional failure. We have seen lying and deceit and corruption and cheating to the point now that business as a whole is deeply distrusted, business leaders as a whole are deeply distrusted, and probably if you asked what is the most present question in people's minds about business leaders today, the uh, answer would be why aren't more of them in jail?
1: That's an interesting question.
2: So that suggests that if it did work in the past, it definitely isn't working now.
1: Well, and then to add to that, we've got political leaders that are...
2: Yeah, we have some political leaders of incredible stamina, creativity, and fortitude. Mm -hmm. And we have some political leaders who... Have been in jail, right? (laughs) we don't want them to
1: have incredible stamina. Right,
2: (laughs) and we have um, other political leaders who may yet end up in jail, but who certainly don't have, you know, what we consider to be the kind of four pillars of trust, which is, you know, consistency, integrity, benevolence, and competence. Yeah. You know, we have business leaders who really appear to be only out for themselves. And that's, you know, that's globally. That is both in in public service and business. And so I think there's a huge, huge question mark in the public mind and among, you know, those of us who study this as to what do we mean by leadership now? And do we have to throw out everything If we don't have to throw out everything, what do we keep? And what do we need quite severely to redesign?
1: Okay. And you have a point of view on this?
2: Well, I have a a very complex point of view, and I won't (laughs) bore you with all of its many fascinating aspects. (laughs) Um, But I think one of the things that interests me most in this space is the fact that we can now map how organizations work. So we can diagram who connects to who, how often.
1: Mm -hmm. And you're talking about systems
2: mapping? Yeah. Systems mapping, communications mapping.
1: Okay.
2: And I think something really fascinating comes out of that because typically if you put an org map next to an org chart, they bear no relationship to each other. Now, in my book, on the org map, the nodes are your leaders. They are the okay. people to whom other people go.
1: So you're not talking formal titles. You're talking no, about functional... but this is
2: the problem, right? The nodes are the leaders. They are the people that other people in the organization trust. They go to them for help, advice, information, insight. They typically aren't on the org chart. They aren't recognized as having this competence. They aren't recognized as fulfilling this role. And they are rarely identified formally as leaders. And I guess if I had to simplify what I believe, I would say the org chart is a kind of fantasy. Uh It's a sort of alternative universe. (laughs) And the org map is the reality. Uh And I think when we look at leadership, we need to be looking at those nodes, what they do, how they work, how they've achieved the level of trust that they have. And figure out, if you like, how you multiply them.
1: Well, and how you also create a context in which they are not working around your formal leaders.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And in some cases, a great effort to work around the people you're paying to do the job of leading.
2: But I think you know, I think people, you know, if you say a leader is somebody people follow, that actually most of those people on the org chart. Aren't leaders. They have very big titles and very big salaries, usually, and very big offices and very big egos, often. But they aren't leaders because they aren't people whom other people follow. They are often people who obstruct a lot of good work. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, let me be fair here. You know, I've been the CEO of five businesses, and I'd like to think that all of that time people didn't think I was just an obstacle. (laughs) No, I was going
1: to say, there were good ones.
2: But I'm also sure that it was rare that I got as much out of the people around me as I could have. And I think that was really my job, because it is incredibly hard. And it is incredibly hard for two reasons. One is just is hard. And the other thing is because the people, especially in hierarchies, so the steeper Uh the hierarchy, the worse it gets, um, people want approval. And so they are constantly looking to leaders for clues as to what will gain them approval. And I think this is the hardest problem a leader has, which is the power that they have. Mm -hmm. The power that they have to stop the people around them from thinking for themselves. And as you mentioned in your introduction, you know, I wrote a book called Willful Blindness, and Willful Blindness looks at major failings in private lives, institutional lives, corporate lives, where major mistakes, sometimes lethal mistakes, were made. And it turned out, as it always turns out, that everybody knew.
1: And nobody said. And
2: nobody said.
1: So this willful blindness isn't akin to not giving fair opportunity to women or men.
2: No, well, well, that is part term. of it. I mean, it's a, it's okay. a. That is certainly part of it. But the fundamental thesis in willful blindness is that when you have these failings, it's not because of anything that's secret or hidden or unknowable. Mm-hmm. It's because of something that's right there. Everybody can see it, and everybody pretends. That it's not there. Mm -hmm. And you see that in Wells Fargo. You see that in the Volkswagen emissions scandal. You see it in the General Motors transmission scandal. You see it in all the banking failures, Mm -hmm. in the LIBOR manipulation, in foreign exchange manipulation. You see it in Harvey Weinstein, at Miramax. You see it everywhere. That everywhere in our organizations... We have bystanders and perpetrators. We have huge amounts of intelligence, and it's all being diverted to the wrong ends by people of goodwill who want to please their bosses. And so that seems to me an incredibly hard problem that even the most brilliant CEO is constantly wrestling with which is how do you create the conditions in which people feel safe
1: enough and eager enough to tell the truth? I, I want to stop for just a second and and say something about the Weinstein thing. Mm. I had a conversation yesterday that some of the, the not speaking up mm. comes at significant personal cost mm. to women who are... Forced to mm. perform acts that yeah. they would not do by choice. Right. So this isn't I ignore that somebody kicked a dog or was unethical on a recording. But the of thing some is, type.
2: the people to whom this was not happening still knew. Everybody knew. So, so I and haven't... and the reason it could continue for so long mm-hmm. is because nobody had the courage. To stand up. Not the victims. Asking the victims to stand up is really a bit rough on them. But all those people who weren't victims, all those people who did have power, all those people who did know
1: and I had a personal did story of that. I worked for a large consulting firm and was sexually harassed at one point. I finally did say something because it was to the point where I could not mm. function. And when I finally reported it just to my boss, he Took it up the ladder. They said it was the worst case of sexual harassment they had ever seen, and exactly what you said. The people around me who worked for me all saw it. Mm. The clients saw it. This man would scream and yell and threaten. Yeah, and he was violent in the workplace. And. One of the people was a former senior military officer, in fact, Mm -hmm. who who wasn't a shrinking violet. He wasn't a young kid. And even he said, yeah, I guess I should have said something.
2: Yeah, you think. Yeah.
1: So I can say with personal experience, this stuff happens all the time.
2: Yeah, it happens all the time. And, you know, I published my book in 2011, and I could have brought out a new edition every six months. Mm -hmm because the stories just go on and on, and they always follow exactly the same pattern. So I think this is a really profound leadership challenge, because it means that the number one job of someone who wishes to be a leader is to create an environment in which people feel really safe. Now, almost everything we have done in terms of management processes militate against that.
1: Yeah, forces compliance. So,
2: you know, we have over-engineered the shirker problem and completely failed to engineer the candor problem. Uh And I think that's a huge challenge in front of us. The thing I didn't understand when I wrote my book, I didn't understand that it had two faces. So there's the one we've just been talking about where something bad is happening, everybody knows, nobody says anything, so it goes on for years or decades. There's also the one where people have ideas and they think, oh, I can't say that because it's stupid, or we do... Really cool, hot software here, and this is a kind of simple software idea, or it's not doesn't have enough pizzazz, or you know it's not a moonshot. Uh-huh. So they have a good idea, but they don't say uh-huh. it. And so it strikes me that there is a cost in terms of risk, which is the first case, but there is a gigantic cost in terms of innovation and relevance. And I guess here, you know, the, I would suggest that, you know, in two thousand and seven when Facebook launched. I know, because I had people working in Google at the time. Mm-hmm. They could all see Facebook. They were all playing with it. They thought it was kind of cool. Nobody said, this is really something. We should do something like this. And it wasn't until 2011 that Google launched Google+, which is just a fiasco. Too late, not good enough, not interesting enough, too late. So there's a huge innovation cost here, which is, you know, the workforce can see trends, changes, tastes, opportunities down the road, but they mostly won't say anything. Or they'll be met with a curt, well, that sounds like a stupid idea. Trust me, all great ideas start off as stupid ideas. You better listen to the stupid ideas Post it notes were a stupid idea. Bottled water was a stupid idea. I mean, I think it is a stupid idea, but it's also about a hundred. Water out of a bottle. Yeah, but it is about a hundred and twenty billion dollar industry right now. So the silence and the fear that characterizes organizations, I think, is the biggest problem that we face today. And I think much of our management practices have created that problem and exacerbate that problem.
1: So what to do then? So we've identified the problem. Mm-hmm. What does a leader of the future do and how do they yeah. think differently?
2: Well I think the first thing is to, is to just get rid of the shirker problem. Okay. So the shirker problem is probably a 5% problem. The failure to innovate and the failure to identify risk early is a 95% problem. Okay. So just, you know, forget marking everybody's homework. This is just inane. It degrades everybody. So then what do you have to do? You have to create an environment in which people feel safe. What makes people feel safe? And actually, even what makes people safe? And I guess for that, you know, I turn to my sociology friends who study communities in times of enormous pressure because we're talking about turbulence, right? Uh And they look at, at communities under enormous pressure. It may be civil disobedience. It may be riots. It may be huge economic stresses and strains. And they notice, and this always happens, that, in a single community, you'll find, for example, a street or a couple of streets that are particularly dangerous, full of broken glass and broken windows and graffiti and so on. And right next to it, really clean, safe streets. So one street, one of those streets is very resilient and the other one is not. And what's the difference? Well, they you know interviewed everybody about everything. And well, the only thing that they can pull out of it is the resilient street, the safe street, it's a street where people know each other. Now, they don't know each other that well. They're not, you know, in and out of each other's houses, mm-hmm. borrowing cups of sugar. But they know each other's names. They, know, they tend to know each other's kind of timetables when mm-hmm. they're around when they're not. They probably know whose kids belong in which house. They may kind of pull in a bicycle if it's been left out overnight, mm-hmm. you know, on the lawn and put it away at night. That kind of thing. They cover each other's back. And sociologists call that social capital. Now, I think it's the job of a leader to create social capital inside the organization, because I think that's the only thing that makes people feel safe. And I don't think it's actually a very hard thing to do, but what militates against it is that it feels very inefficient because social capital compounds with time. So you have to give people time to get to know each other. You have to give them time together. And mostly, with our management hats on, We've done exactly the opposite. We've sliced and diced people into tasks mm-hmm. so that at their most efficient, they hardly ever touch one another.
1: And yet it is that relating that creates the glue.
2: It's the relating that creates the glue. There is some really interesting research out of MIT that suggests that if the glue good enough, or I could call it the mortar, if the mortar is good enough, it doesn't much matter what the bricks are made of. In other words, and I think this is fascinating. If you really had a very, very cohesive environment, you probably did wouldn't have to be that careful about who you hired. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Because in a cohesive environment, we people all get have- the best
2: out of each other, and it far exceeds individual intelligence. Okay. So, and you can see high achieving teams are not teams with highest aggregate IQ or one or two IQ superstars.
1: And I'd say that's probably true of sports teams as well. It
2: is true of sports teams. It's a wonderful example where it's the French women's relay against the U.S. team. And the U.S. team had the three fastest women in the world on their team. Mm -hmm. And they lost to the French. And why did they lose? Well, the women individually ran fast. They weren't too good at passing the baton.
1: Really? And it was just that split second? Yeah. that will do it.
2: So it's the interstitial stuff, it's the stuff between, that really makes the difference. And we've mostly, in the name of efficiency, cut that all out. Uh And the gig economy, of course, does that famously, you know. So people never meet each other. And so there's no trust, there's no reciprocity, there's no generosity. And so, first of all, people don't feel safe because it's very precarious. But also, if they have an idea or they have a concern, they don't have anybody to take it to.
1: You know, it's interesting. I did work with large system implementation, so enterprise software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seems like we offshored a bunch of stuff to India, and that was more financially efficient. Mm -hmm. And then we ended up putting those Indian people on planes and made them sit in our offices, which was less financially efficient. But we kept missing deadlines. And they didn't get smarter on the plane. No, so it wasn't a. That's right. An excellent
2: example. Yeah, absolutely. No, they didn't get smarter on the plane; they got smarter when they could see people face to face, and when they were more motivated because they were working for each other. Mm-hmm. Because really, people do their best work not when they're working for the boss, but when they have a high degree of accountability to their colleagues. So I'll stay late and finish something, because I know if I don't, you need it first thing in the morning. And if I haven't got it done, I'm going to let you down. Now, I may be very happy letting the company down, but I'm not happy letting you down. It's personal.
1: So is that possible in an environment where we work remotely?
2: Well, it is and it isn't. I've worked with a number of global companies, and they have reluctantly conceded that on these huge global collaborations Mm -hmm. in pharma, for example, they've still got to bring teams together once or twice a year. The technology will maintain the relationships that are built but it won't create the relationships that are built. And we've played with some kind of funky tricks to kind of keep that relationship going. Like, you know, everybody will agree to watch the same movie in the same week, and then they can talk about it, you know, when they oh, have their like conference call. Exactly. Huh. So there are ways of, of keeping it going.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But human contact still counts. And the only thing I think is sad is that some people would regard that as sad. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, a, it's inefficient.
2: But you see, the thing is, it's not inefficient. I know. Because if in that you capture the, hang on a second, we forgot this, or hang on a second, there's something weird going on there.
1: How you often know, do you see someone in the hallway and say, oh yeah, I need Oh to yeah,
2: help. I have a client who works for one of, the, one of the biggest chip designers in the world, and I kept banging on about it, how he needed to go and talk to people because they have offices all over the place. Uh-huh. So he goes to Norway for a day, runs into somebody in the hallway, solves a gigantic problem they haven't solved for three months.
1: And, it's the, and it's everyone
2: the has those stories, yes.
1: So as we come to an, a wrap of this segment, what do you want listeners to walk away with?
2: Really, probably a couple of things. The first is the organizational silence, the fear of speaking up, the fear of trialing crazy ideas. I think is the gigantic hidden cost of our current Uh organizations. The climate of fear that characterizes almost every organization is a gigantic cost and I think is hugely implicated in our lack of productivity. I think it's soluble if you recognize that investing in the time for people to get to know each other as people is the only thing that will make them feel safe. And if you do that, they become more creative, they become more open, and the whole organization becomes a lot healthier.
1: It sounds like then there's also an emphasis culturally that yes. we value relationship.
2: Yeah, that we value relationships, and we as leaders have the humility to recognize that companies don't have ideas. Only people have ideas. Um, that it doesn't matter where you are on the org chart, if people are afraid of you, they won't tell you the truth. And you can say until you're blue in the face, my door is always open. They're going to try very hard not to walk past that door Uh for fear of being called into it. And I think, and I still think, I know we've studied this for decades, I still think we fail to understand how damaging power is.
1: That's a brilliant note to end on. (laughs) (laughs) Morgan, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. My pleasure. It
3: was fun. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today.
1: Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. Today we are joined by Ira Chaleff. He is an author, speaker, and innovative thinker. His latest work, Intelligent Disobedience, is now available on Amazon. He's the founder and president of Executive Coaching and Consulting Associates since 1996. As a coach, Ira provides a stimulating and safe environment for executives and their teams to examine, evaluate, and significantly improve their management style, skills, and processes. Through targeted interviews, work climate surveys, and multi-viewpoint feedback instruments. He involves all of those who have a stake in the change process, analyzes their input, and provides frank, constructive feedback sessions. The outcome of this session, we hope that everyone walks away with an understanding that to bring out the best leadership requires the best followership. Influence is not unidirectional from leader to follower, but bidirectional and multi-directional. Just as dancing needs each partner to follow one another with skill and grace, so does leadership and followership in all realms of activities needing to bring out the best in each other. They elevate each other's performance in support of the mission to bring together the most effective results. So Ira, let's start a conversation. Let's talk about your work. Where do you want to start?
3: Well, first of all, I got interested in followership because of the history of humanity following destructive leaders, oh. with all of the terrible consequences of that. When I started to write about followership, there was very little out there There's one very good book before mine uh, by Robert Kelly, who has spoken at the ILA. Mm -hmm. Robert is an academic. I'm a practitioner. So my book looked at how could you, when you occupy the follower role, how could you build a partnership with the positional leader so that they felt very supported by you and when you needed to give them constructive feedback, Mm -hmm. candidly, that perhaps they didn't necessarily want to hear, but needed to hear, that you had the relationship with which to do that. So that they would then take seriously what you were telling them. And hopefully then correct their blind spots, correct the tendency of power to distort our perceptions, our behavior. And because I was an early writer and thinker Mm -hmm. on followership, I become a kind of, (laughs) this is funny to say, like a quote household name Mm. among those who study leadership and followership. Okay,
1: So for listeners for whom this is a topic they haven't studied, what are the top couple of things you want to make sure that people walk away with and assume some of our listeners are leaders and some of our listeners are followers?
3: Well, actually, you have just articulated the misconception that is very universal, so I appreciate your doing that.
1: My lack of knowledge.
3: (laughs) In the sense that leaders are not one set of people and followers another set, Mm -hmm. but rather we all lead and follow at different mm-hmm. times, and particularly when you get into the middle management, mm-hmm. whether it's private or public sector, military.
1: Even the executives have boards.
3: Exactly. You're leading sometimes, you're following other times. And if times. you're married, you're... There you go. Exactly. So what... We are, as a culture, we've just become absolutely enamored, almost crazy with leadership. Everywhere you go, there are programs to develop leaders. All of those people who take those programs are also followers. And when they go back to their organizations and try to make an impact, if they don't know how to do the follower role as well with strength, they're probably not going to be as effective as they could in their leader role.
1: So assuming then, let me ask the question differently, how do I become a good follower?
3: Good. And you're just doing wonderfully here because you're asking... <laughs> all the you're asking, questions? Well, you're asking me all the the questions contain the cultural biases mm-hmm. that we need to re-examine. Okay. In other words, when you say how to become a good follower, people stuff, people right? think, oh, that's a bit passive, you know, it's a bit... Sheep-like. I don't know if I want to be a good follower. I
1: want to be good at whatever I do. You know. Well, that's true,
3: (laughs) and you're absolutely right. We do need to be good followers. What I've done is I've used different language, and I'm using language of how do we be a courageous follower, Mm. and that elevates it. It takes it out of the weak kind of stereotype. Exactly. And we need to be courageous sometimes in doing what leaders ask us to do, because leaders can't eliminate all risk. So sometimes we have to have faith in the leader Mm -hmm. and kind of suspend our own reservations and follow. At other times, we have more information, better information, more up-to-date information, even better analysis than the leader who's further removed from the action. Mm -hmm. And we know that what the leader is asking us to do actually is not going to have the outcome the leader thinks it's going to have. And there we need to be able to speak up, make our case effectively in dissent, and help the leader understand why we are encouraging them to rethink what
1: they've asked us to do. And that does require, depending on the leader and their style, a wide range of skills.
3: Absolutely. It requires an astuteness, it requires emotional intelligence, it requires a political savvy. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've discovered in playing the the role well, and I think this holds true for playing the leader role as well, is that although we're both united in service of the mission Mm -hmm. and the values that bring us together, we also all bring our own self-interest to work whether it's to you know feed our family or to be promoted and to be acknowledged for doing a good job mm-hmm. etc so when we're framing issues for the leader we need to understand what his or her self-interest is so that when we describe how this will help the mission we also if necessary if they don't get it right away we also can help them understand while this is going to support what they hope happens in their lives, in their profession.
1: So this skill is the same or similar for both leaders and followers then. Because as a leader I should understand who my followers are, what motivates them, and how to talk to them. Ranging from language choice and culture and nuance, the single mom may care about The biggest reward is get out of work on time to pick the kids up from school and be able to leave early in some cases. I may have someone else who's trying to, their biggest objective is to make a name for themselves, and what they want is opportunities to stay late and do projects. As a follower, it sounds like I need to now understand my boss and his or her motives and language my observations, objections, concerns, whatever, feedback in a way that will resonate with them as both a leader and a human.
3: Perfectly said, and if you want to co-author the next book with me, I you're invited. Love to. The <laughs> <laughs> leaders, people in positions of leadership at different times in their career and lives, have different self interest. Sometimes as you say, that you know it's a, a time of ambition. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a time of uh, they have health issues or they have family Mm -hmm. issues and they're trying to establish work-life balance, and paying attention to this and being supportive as much as possible, never at the expense of the mission, just as the leader can't favor us at the expense of the mission, but both, I love the way you said it, pay attention to our mutual humanity and how can we help each other be better in our role and in our service.
1: Mm, Thank you. So it sounds like as a follower I need to understand that piece and then my guess is the next step is I have to learn how to give that feedback in a way it can be heard and then do I just let my boss go do whatever they do? I'm assuming that that puts me back in the sheep role, courageous but not fired.
3: So first of all, you're again, you're right on the money, language is so important. Uh, When I do workshops, we pay a lot of attention to how assertive is the message Mm -hmm. or how what linguists call mitigating is it. Mm -hmm. There's a right time for each language. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, when you're driving the wrong way down a one-way street, I'll probably be assertive. Exactly.
3: Now, the leader is not under an obligation to change because we think he or she should. They wouldn't be leading if they always did that. Mm -hmm. In fact, they would drive everyone crazy.
1: Yeah, we call that immature leadership.
3: Okay. (laughs) So the leader doesn't have that obligation, but hopefully he or she is a good listener. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: If we believe the point is really an important one, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: we have an obligation in the follower role to try again, not with the same pitch, (laughs) <laughs> but go back and do some more research, uh, give them more data, give them more case examples, perhaps bring in different uh, allies who they mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. also bring uh, important perspectives. However, if after the second or third time,
1: we haven't, like the,
3: we haven't convinced the leader,
1: mm-hmm.
3: inherent in the follow role is subordinating our preferences
1: mm-hmm.
3: and following the leader, except... If safety, ethics, mm-hmm. legal issues are involved,
0: mm-hmm.
3: if those are involved, mm-hmm. then we have to stop following and that mm-hmm. moves into what I now call intelligent disobedience which ah, is okay, which is, what which is my right latest right book okay. it, right and intelligent disobedience comes from the model of guide dogs. Oh. if a guide dog gets a command to go forward and there's a Quiet hybrid car coming around the corner. It oh. must not obey. It'll get the team killed, right? right? So there's actually a skill set and a psychology mm. that's needed. It's rare, but it's critical to know when not to obey intelligently, and how to, in that sense, both keep the leader from harming themselves mm-hmm. and others unintentionally. Usually, it's unintentional uh, because they have blind spots. So there's really a lot of self-awareness, other awareness, skill set involved in playing the role in an exemplary fashion.
1: Yeah, I I just think of all of the situations in which I disagreed with someone for whom I was working, and the, the reality is I didn't know what they knew, and often there were things they couldn't share. Especially if it related to other people, or kind of need to know we're going to lay people off, whatever business reasons. It's such a nuanced spot to know when to be intelligently disobedient and when to follow mindfully.
3: Yes, that's right. You know, there's no perfection in either role, in either the leading or the following uh-huh. role, uh-huh. but there's accountability. And we do the best we can to stay alert, to stay aware. And the simple rule on intelligent disobedience is if you can see that implementing the order is clearly going to produce harm, then disobedience, intelligently, constructively, is the right action. If leaders don't have at least some people around them who can keep them from stepping off the curb, (laughs) When a truck is coming, they are actually in danger. So, you know, a smart leader understands, again, from the platform of supportiveness, this isn't being done from someone who's always fighting with the leader. This is someone who's generally helping the leader achieve the goal, succeed, just as the guide dog is helping the blind person. But occasionally needs to make a correction to keep the leader from getting into a situation that they didn't intend to, didn't want to, and would be harmful?
1: So the thing that comes to mind is in this era we would say that effective leaders are innately collaborative and that collaboration is with peers people of higher rank, but also subordinates clients subordinates a bad word, but people who work for us our clients, our strategic partners. So, so that collaboration would be with my followers also, it seems. But yes.
3: And if you have a wonderful leader mm-hmm. that has all of those competencies and awarenesses, life's easy and you work well together um, without much effort. We all have worked with leaders who are less than perfect as we are less than perfect. Yeah. And so that's when we have to be prepared uh-huh. to go out of our comfort zone, maybe take the leader out of his or her comfort zone in order to avoid avoidable harm. I mean, uh-huh. There's always risk that you know, maybe cannot be avoided, but that which is seen, understood, and could be avoided. That's the job of the courageous follower and intelligent disobedience. Perfect.
1: So, Ira, can you explain why followership training is so serious to any good practitioner of leadership?
3: We spend billions of dollars training leaders, yet leaders are only effective if they have followers who are committed and energetic and interactive. Why do we think that leaders need the training but followers don't? There's a disconnect there. I mean, we have to have a, a sort of a theory mm-hmm. of why, why is training valuable. Now, even say, well, the good leader will just sort of shape the followers. No, that's the old school way of thinking about mm-hmm. it. What happens is the higher up people go in leadership, the more that their own success formulas tend to get rigid. Well, this got me here, I'm going to, you know, be, you know, being tough as nails got me, I'm going to be tougher as nails, and mm-hmm. et cetera. And at some point, whatever the virtue was that got them there becomes a vice. Mm-hmm. Now, it's the people closest to them who are in the positional follower roles that can see what they're doing, see the impact that that is having on the organization, on the team. And if they have the relationship where they can... You know, candidly, have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's, maybe it's two-way coaching. Even Uh, then, the leader can keep adjusting, can keep growing in place, and that's what we need. We need to be continuously getting the best, not the worst, out of our leaders. So I believe that all the billions of dollars that we're spending will be far more productive and effective if at least some of that went into you're being trained because you're a senior manager in your company and you're being trained in your leadership and your management skills for the 200 people below you the three or four people above you in the hierarchy you also need to be trained to manage those relationships well.
1: Ah so if we reframed it to managing up we could. That that language, I'm just thinking of what resonates with people who have worked so hard and whose identity is associated with the idea of managing.
3: Yes, we can do that. And the only caution I have mm-hmm. is that we're not talking about how to figure out how to manipulate the people above us.
1: Uh, I think that's a good caveat and clarification. Yeah,
3: we have to be authentic, just as leaders have to be authentic, people mm-hmm. in the in the senior follow role, have to be authentic as well. But yes, it's co-managing, up and down, co-creating.
1: To me, that is what collaboration is. You may be my boss, but we still, in some ways, collaborate to produce whatever we're trying to do according to our mission.
3: You're absolutely right. And because we are in a hierarchy in most of our Mm -hmm. organizations, Mm -hmm. And I don't control your paycheck, but you control mine. You control my my evaluation. You control my bonuses. Mm -hmm. You control my assignments. The distorting effects of hierarchy can now create distortions in our professional relationship, which would not be there if there wasn't the hierarchy.
1: Well, And we're seeing that a lot right now in our media with some of the sexual harassment issues.
3: Yes, we're seeing it there. And just... Take a look at all the big scandals, the Volkswagen scandal, Mm -hmm. the big banking scandals, the Wells Fargo scandal. Mm -hmm. And it's almost every week we're hearing about another major company where either the implicit or explicit pressures to make a target, make a quarterly result, pass a, a compliance metric, is now being met falsely. And then it, it works for a little while, and then the company loses one-third of its share values, gets involved in a decade of litigation, lives are put at risk or you mm-hmm. know even lost. And how are we equipping our people up and down the chain to know when they have to be a circuit breaker? To say... I know that looks like a good idea because it'll make us look good by the metrics that control your bonus and my bonus. Let me tell you why it's risky, and let me give you some better ideas on how we can approach this. That would be collaboration within a hierarchical setting.
1: Just as you say that, it's all the way back to Enron, and I'm sure Enron wasn't the beginning of this.
3: Absolutely. but People's en-
1: life savings were lost. Yes,
3: and Enron would cover Enron in some depth in my book, The Intelligent Disobedience, because the the accountant that was pressured to falsify the numbers mm-hmm. went home and was wrote out a letter of resignation. And then she tore it up, and she went ahead and obeyed for three or four quarters until the internal auditor discovered what was happening. Mm-hmm. And the accountant and several accountants went to jail. It's not just the people who mm. gave her the pressure. Yeah. So there are very serious personal and professional consequences as well oh. when you get too close to ethical lines or across them.
1: Interesting. So as we bring this to a close, what do you want our listeners to absolutely take away? I heard followership should be part of any good leadership program, that as a leader I should also know how to collaborate and follow but not manipulate the people to whom I report and that there were processes and practices and skills, hard skills that I can learn to do better. What else do you want people to take away?
3: When I'm talking to groups in their follower role Mm -hmm. I'm also having them examine the subject of courage because you can't do these things without a certain amount of courage. Where does courage come from for them? When I'm talking to those same people in the leader role I'm telling them that they need to reduce the amount of courage needed Mm. to speak to them with candor.
1: Great. That's a wonderful point. So give us the name of your book again and how people would reach out to you.
3: The Courageous Follower, Standing Up To and For Our Leaders, 3rd edition, available in any format, and Intelligent Disobedience, Doing Right When What You're Told to Do Is Wrong, you can go to my website, irachaliff.com.
1: And how do you spell your last name?
3: I'm going to give you the whole oh. thing. I-R-A-C-H-A-L-E-F-F dot com.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Ira. It's been a pleasure to learn more about your work. And for you to share that with our listeners. Thank you for joining us live in Brussels at the International Leadership Association Conference. In these turbulent times, investing time and energy to refresh and evolve your leadership skills becomes a critical success driver. I challenge each of us to consider the impact effective leadership makes on our lives and on the lives of the organizations we lead and the people that those organizations impact. Imagine what each of us can do As we work together to solve these big problems that impact us, together we can create a world that is more peaceful, more just, and creates more opportunities for everyone to thrive.